Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, good evening. Come on in. Hats and jackets off. Grab a drink of something warm or something cool, as is your wont, and settle in. And welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. I know you. You're the sort of person who loves to snuggle in and let the chills come. That's me, too. I'm Lawrence Santora. And I have been at this particular tale-telling nook for, yeah, 15 weeks now. And I hope you're enjoying it. I am. I'm at least one of you, you know who you are, has suggested that Tales to Terrify would be improved by less of the long-winded host who obviously is reading from a script and trying to make it sound as though he, I, were not. Well... Do I read from a script? No. And yes, I have notes. Uh, when I list the works and dates of an author and I give bio bits about one of our narrators, yes, I have it written down. When I'm talking about people I know, well, I sometimes have notes about the points I want to cover, but I usually wing those. And <laughs> I'm doing it now. Long-windedness. Should I trim the fat? Or... Is the fat the stuff that gives the breaks between the stories a little taste? See, I want to give you the sense of being a guest, a, a family member, cozied up in this place, this nook that we've created that is real, and listening, listening to somebody read to you, a live person, a live voice. I know most of you are likely on the bus or in your car heading to work or at work, but, well... Let me know. Let me know what you think. Okay. Tonight, we'll have another slice of flesh. That's from the book, Slices of Flesh. This time, it is by Max Booth III. 
Max is a story editor and copy editor for Dark Moon Digest. Dark Moon, by the way, is the uh, publisher of Slices. And he is also, uh, Max is, uh, a monthly columnist for the EMAG Dark Eclipse. He's got stories in multiple anthologies and a monster survival guide he has co-authored will launch this summer. He also really, really likes penguins, he says. Here, from Slices of Flesh, is Monster by Max Booth the Third. Hell found me. Yeah, that's what the newspapers said. Hell finds Jason Burns, read the headlines. <laughs> found me. I didn't understand. Why was hell looking for me in the first place? What in the world had I ever done to deserve this? No, no. Wrong question. What did my daughter do to ever deserve this. Seven years old, the worst thing she'd ever done was color on the wall, but still, that didn't stop him. Him. I can't bear to say his name. The monster. I sit in my favorite chair, clutching the double-barreled shotgun, eyes burning into the blank wall in front of me. I try to lose myself in the white nothingness of the texture and fail. There is only one route for my mind to take, one miserably lousy fucking route. I recollect the day. The day took place two months ago. I, I can still remember every detail as if it were yesterday. In a way, it did happen yesterday and the day before and the day before that. It's here now, and it, it'll still be around tomorrow. The day replays constantly like a nightmare caught in a loop. It was a Saturday afternoon, no school for the young ones. I was at work, uh, the construction man that I am. My baby girl and beautiful wife were at home. I remember kissing them both goodbye that morning, just as I did every morning before I left. It was our ritual. I kissed them. I always kissed them. Now I can't kiss either of them ever again. It's all gone. Gone. I told them I would see them later. My daughter... Madison asked me if I would take her to feed the ducks at the park when I returned home. I said, of course, and brushed the hair out of her eyes. I then drove away in my truck, never to see her perfect face again. Later that evening, I came home to an empty house. I called their names, but received zero response, so I picked up the phone and dialed my wife's cell. I remember how surprised she was that I had already made it home. She told me how the time had just slipped by. She didn't mean it. She hadn't even thought it was noon yet. My wife's gambling addiction had always been bad, but I, I never thought she'd leave her own child home alone for quality time with the slot machine. What a fool I had been. She called me a liar when I said Madison was nowhere to be found. Me, the liar. If you can believe that one, she told me how she had been very clear to our daughter that she wasn't allowed to leave the house. I left the phone hanging on the wall, went back outside where I found one lonely jump rope abandoned in the front yard. Next to it was a single size 12 child's shoe. The search team discovered Madison's bruised, lifeless body a few hundred yards in the woods, Behind our house, I didn't want to look at her, but I, I knew I had to. 
They said she was first struck multiple times in the stomach and shoulders by a blunt instrument as someone dragged her away from the front yard and into the forest. They said next, he did things. They said she was strangled after or during the rape, most likely both. They said her windpipe had been completely crushed. They said a neighbor had spotted a man in a UPS uniform running away from the crime scene. They said a lot of things. They always did. Didn't matter anymore. My little girl was dead and there was nothing anyone could do about it. My little girl. A suspect was soon apprehended. I'm not going to say his name. I'm not sure I'm able to yet. The piece of shit doesn't deserve a name. A trial commenced. Many painstaking hours waiting as the jury made their decision. I wonder where I would be right now if the verdict had returned guilty. It was soon after the release of our daughter's murderer that the remorse became too much for my wife. I found her soaking peacefully in a crimson bubble bath, her lifeless hand dangling over the tub. It was all the invitation I needed to join her. And soon, I will. The press oh, fell into hysterics after that. The loss of my family and the fact that the killer was free to roam the earth came to... Much interest to the times. Hell finds Jason Burns. It was recommended I see a psychiatrist, some professional help to sort out any mental disdain that may have been caused from my tragic losses. I laughed in their faces and turned the other way, closing the door to all the curious neighbors and reporters that kept snooping around, pretending they cared. I spent the rest of the time in the house, particularly the basement, thinking I shed many tears as I sat there in my favorite chair. And now, here I am again, in my chair, looking at the wall, thinking. The shotgun rests in my lap. However, unlike usual, I am not alone in this basement of despair. I look over to my right and stare at the creature tied up in the wooden chair. He's a bloody mess, and yet I haven't received satisfaction yet. I, I don't think I ever will, but this certainly is a start. I want to hurt him more and more. I want to keep hurting him until my arms grow tired, and then I want to grind my teeth into his flesh and spit it back out in his face and make him swallow it. Revenge is the only thing on my mind right now as I rise from my chair and approach my family's murderer. I lay the shotgun on the cushion and move in closer with the knife I snag from the kitchen. He brought hell to me. Now I'm going to bring hell to him. His screams almost make me smile as I carve the blade's tip into his bare chest. I take my sweet time. And when I'm finished, I'm left with a very deep and gory monster written across where his chest hair should be. I leave the knife sticking in a place that will make certain he'll never hurt another child ever again and go to retrieve my shotgun. 
I hear the front door being busted down, but I pay it. No, never mind. The monster is screaming his lungs off as he stares down at the sharp steel piercing his groin, blood spurting up like a slit hose. It's like background music fading out of focus when the search team storms down the basement steps with their weapons drawn. They're telling me to put down my gun, step away. They tell me it's not worth it. Nothing is worth anything anymore. I raise the barrel and pull the trigger. The monster stops crying and begins burning, the eternal burn, burn. It takes me a moment to realize I'm on the floor, blood leaking out of me by the gallon. They keep firing even though I'm clearly no longer a threat. I embrace it. I want my family. I want to see them again. I want us to be together, damn it. I want, I want, I want... I want to take my baby girl to feed the ducks. I manage a bloody smile as I float toward the park. It's okay now, baby. Daddy's here. And he'll never be away again. And thank you for that, Max. Uh, originally from Indiana, Max says he recently moved to Texas uh, in hopes, and I'm quoting him, of accomplishing even less with his life than he did back in the Midwest. Well, along with being an editor and a columnist, Max also writes the occasional story, as he has done here, obviously. Anthologies his work can or will soon be found in include Open Casket's Zombie Buffet, Dark Moon presents Ghosts, Postmortem Presses, New Dawn Fades, Dark Moon presents Vampires, and Frightmares, A Fistful of Flash Fiction Horror. Also be sure to keep an eye out for his work in the next two upcoming issues of Dark Moon Digest. Additionally, he can be found peering in through your curtains. And that part was a lie. Kind of. He says... And Monster is one of 90 tales in Slices of Flesh. You're probably tired of hearing me say this by now, but please go to your online bookstore of choice and grab a copy or three of them. Uh, your purchase will help a number of causes. So click on the site and have a look. Oh, I read that story. I, I guess you knew that. I hope you liked it. I am... Lawrence Santoro, I am the author of Just North of Nowhere, a wondrous exploration of life in a monster-embraced small town in the driftless zone of the upper Midwest, and most recently, a collection of longish and short short fiction called Drink for the Thirst to Come from Silver Thought Press. I hope you buy them both. I've got two novels in the works right now, and I host and am the sometimes narrator of dark stories on Tales to Terrify. And now we have come full circle. And speaking of circles, I jumped ahead of myself when you came in tonight. I'd hoped you'd take a moment to have a look at the new artwork we've got up on the home site. Green, yes, spooky, green, dark... The work is by Canadian artist and author M.J. Preston, Mark Preston. Mark is a retired soldier and 
of all things, an ice road trucker. He's the author of the horror novel The Equinox, and our wall art is a piece Mark created for that book. Over the years, Mark has done articles and stories, and in addition to writing, he's cultivated a spooky talent for sketching, painting, and most recently, graphic arts. As said, Mark's a former Canadian military guy, and in 1998, after serving 12 years, I believe he was medically discharged, following which he became an advocate for serving and retired veterans, founding the news group Canadian Veterans Alliance. Spurred by that, he began to experiment with graphics and digital photography, creating banners and online magazine covers. Now he works on everything from wall-sized murals to smaller efforts that use an airbrush. His latest medium is digital art, and it can be viewed on his web pages and his YouTube channel where he highlights his work with animation and video. Mark's got a lot of stuff uh, in his website, and it's really classic. Take a look. Currently, Mark is concentrating on a new novel and a photo book depicting Canada's Arctic ice road. About the piece he's allowed us to use for the show, Mark tells me that the handsome fellow on the left is a nefarious critter known as a skinwalker. And the silhouette on the right is serial killer Stephen Hopper, not to be confused with the Australian botanist. To learn more about Mark, uh, go to mjpreston.net. That's his website, mjpreston, one word, dot net. Poetry. There is no poetry tonight. There will be next week. Maybe. Short Fiction. We've got two tales tonight. The first is by Barbara Barnett Stewart, and of herself she says that, in a nutshell, she's an avid rejection letter collector. Ah, yes, let me tell you a story about Ray Bradbury and rejection slip. No, that's long-winded, I'm sorry. Another time. Where am I? Ah, Barbara is a musician, a grad student, a coffee addict, wine lover, bad movie mocker, and all-round geek. Her words. As she describes her short fiction as going from dark to wacky, it has appeared in Fantasy Magazine, Daily Science Fiction, Black Static, Shimmer, and Wild Stories 2011, the year's best gay speculative fiction. And now here is Barbara Barnett Stewart's the Sins of the Living. Thomas tossed his head back, drained the last of his ale, then slammed the mug down hard enough to knock his tricornered hat off its perch on the table's edge. The throbbing in his temples worsened. Even the jolting motion of his last carriage ride home from Richmond hadn't made his head ache so badly. But ten mugs of ale wasn't enough to erase that final image of Sarah, lips blue and eyes wide with the vacuity of death, a death for which he was responsible. "'No good will come of marrying this girl,' his father had once told him, frowning with his usual disapproval. Thomas's memory of that look dug more sharply into his gut now than it had ever had before. He had become a lawyer as his father had wanted. He had earned the esteem of his colleagues— and taken a wife whom the church elders praised for her piety. What more could he have done to please the man? 
Thomas stared into his mug and studied his distorted reflection in the stray droplets of ale that clung to the sides. Once more, the unbidden memory came, his father and Sarah together, betraying him in his own home, his own bed. "'Guess I'll never be like you now, father,' Thomas muttered. "'Damned hypocrite that you are.' But even killing the man could not banish his voice from Thomas's head, chiding him with lectures on sin and redemption, with strange stories about creatures who fed off the sins of those who refused to acknowledge their wrongdoing. "'Well, if sin is bad,' Thomas had once asked as a child, "'then isn't it a good thing that these creatures take it away?' "'Not when all you're left with is emptiness,' his father had said. Thomas's lack of comprehension must have shown on his face, for his father looked to the sky with eyes that seemed to plead, "'Why does my son never understand?' "'How we overcome our sins,' his father continued. "'Our desire to sin is what defines us. "'Without the capacity for sin, you would be but a shell, "'like your mother before she took her life.' "'Hypocritical nonsense,' Thomas thought now. He waved his hand to catch a serving woman's attention as she passed, but she ignored him and continued on toward a group of men at a nearby table, all in powdered wigs and knee-length coats that were not so wrinkled as the one Thomas had discarded on the bench beside him. He groaned in annoyance and ran his hands through his hair, pulling some of it free from the ribbon that held it back. "'Haven't you had enough, Thomas?' a woman asked. Thomas squinted up at her, uncertain if it was the tavern's smoky air or the amount he had drunk that made it so hard to focus on her. She wore a gown of deep crimson velvet, square-necked with an embroidered silk inset and ruffled sleeves, and her auburn hair was piled on her head in loose curls, some of which escaped their binding and fell down her neck. Except for the knowing smile on her lips, every facial feature was indistinct, as if Thomas were seeing her through a cloud of smoke. And yet, she seemed familiar. "'Do I know you?' he asked, aware of how slurred his speech was, of how rumpled his breeches and stockings were, of how his unbuttoned waistcoat was hanging open. For a moment, he swore he could smell the imperceptible droplets of blood on his cravat. "'I know you.' the woman said, joining Thomas on the bench and pressing close. And I know what you've done. Thomas jumped to his feet, banging his knees so hard against the table that he almost toppled it. He would have fallen over the bench, but the woman took him by the arm and eased him back into his seat. She brushed her fingers across his temples, and though Thomas never closed his eyes, a vision came to him. This strange woman gliding through a crowd gathered at the gallows, her smirk the only distinct feature as she watched him hang. Thomas shook away the vision, sick with the panic and rage he had spent the night trying to drown and drink. I had every right to kill her, he told himself, trembling at the memory of his hands around Sarah's neck. To kill them both! Is that what your faith teaches you? The woman asked, her tone casual, as if she were responding to words instead of thoughts he had not voiced. Thou shalt not kill, except to punish as you deem fit. Who the hell are you? Thomas asked in a choked whisper. I was once a dear friend of your mother's, until I found her laying with my husband. Molly Warren, 
Thomas said. You're Molly Warren. I remember you. You were so young. Molly stroked his cheeks, and though her touch was delicate, Thomas imagined her fingernails were claws tearing his flesh. And now we have so much in common, Thomas. I can help you take back this thing you've done. How? Molly laughed, a low sound as smoky as the tavern. (laughs) Do you want to take it back? Thomas's chest tightened with the desperate desire to see Sarah again, to know her skin would be warm with life, even if he wasn't the one to hold her. Yes. I warn you, if you are not truly repentant of your sin, my master will know. Molly leaned closer, filling Thomas's nose with her strange scent, fire-masked in perfume. Do you still want to take it back? Thomas licked his lips. The closer Molly drew to him, the drier they became. I do. Molly kissed him, gripping his arms so tightly Thomas could not pull away from her searing touch. Heat flashed through him, neither passion nor desire but pain, burning into him just as his guilt had when he'd felt Sarah die at his hands. He grew dizzy, closed his eyes. Molly released him and he fell backward, engulfed by cold darkness. Thomas landed on his feet and lurched forward. He shot out his right hand until it found a wall. He steadied himself, but his head still swam from too much drink, and he felt a weight in his left hand that had not been there a moment before. What did you... Thomas blinked, but clearer vision only brought more confusion. Molly was gone, and he was no longer in the tavern. He was home, standing in the twilight-shadowed haze of the second-floor hall. The weight in his left hand was a flintlock pistol, the hammer half-cocked. His heart pounded faster as a moan sounded from beyond the closed door of the master bedroom. Sarah. Her moan turned into a muffled cry, followed by the murmur of a man's voice. His father. Thomas had lived through this moment once already, and had relived it in his head again and again until his guilt did not burn as much as the ale he kept pouring down his throat. Only this time, the effect of that drink was still with him. Thomas stared at the pistol in his hand. He remembered pouring a measure of gunpowder down the barrel, ramming a cloth-wrapped lead ball in after, loading more powder into the flashpan. But everything that happened afterwards, could he have imagined it all? He thought he had gone straight for the pistol after learning of the rendezvous Sarah and his father had planned. Now, though... He questioned which was more likely, that he was too furious and inebriated to remember drinking at all, or that he had killed his wife and father and had been sent back to that fateful moment by a woman he hadn't seen in the years since his mother had died. From the bedroom, Sarah cried out again. Thomas would have thought she was in pain had he not known better. Sarah and his father had no idea he was there, thought he was attending to business in town, and somehow that made the sound of their lovemaking all the more mocking. Thomas tightened his grip on the pistol. Molly Warren, real or imagined, was wrong. He had no sin to repent, had performed no wrong in the eyes of God. And whether or not he had imagined this moment, this time it would be different. This time, he would let Sarah live to regret her sin. With purposeful yet unsteady steps, Thomas stormed down the hall and threw open the bedroom door. 
Sarah cried out, and his father leapt off her, eyes wide with surprise as his feet tangled in the bedsheets. Thomas raised the pistol. Hello, father. The words came out more slurred than he remembered. Thomas had no doubt he had spoken them before. But the shock of seeing his father, the man who had always denigrated Sarah as a whore, a hypocrite for her pretension to piety, still hit him like a blow to the gut. His veins iced over with the certainty that he'd done this once already. He had shot his father, then throttled his wife. Sarah clutched the bedsheets, face streaked with tears, voice quavering with fear. Thomas, please. You don't know what he is. He attacked me and I... Thomas moved the hammer to full cock. Don't lie to me, woman! His father, standing by the bedside in rumpled clothing, raised his hands the way one would to calm a jittery horse. Listen to me, son. Remember what I told you? Thomas squeezed the trigger. Though the startling discharge was the same, everything else changed. Thomas had held his ground before, but this time the pistol's recoil sent him staggering backwards into the doorframe. He closed his eyes and swallowed back the vomit that surged up his throat at the motion. A cool breeze touched his face, and the silence struck him as wrong. He heard no scream from Sarah, no plea for help from his father as he clutched at the wound in his chest. Thomas opened his eyes to find them both gaping at him, Sarah with horror, his father as if he were still shocked to be alive. Then Thomas saw the shattered glass of the window his stray shot had broken. He dropped the pistol and ran. Thomas grasped the railing to keep from stumbling down the stairs, and his footing failed to improve upon flatter ground. He staggered out of the house, into the streets, tottering even though there was little other than gravel and piles of horse dung to impede him. He shoved past people making their way home for the evening, past the boys who lit the street lanterns, not stopping until he'd found a secluded alleyway between the tavern and the apothecary's shop. Thomas dropped to his knees and retched. To send me back as drunk as she found me. Thomas staggered to his feet, thinking the stale, bitter taste in his mouth more pleasant than the kiss Molly had given him at the tavern. His instinct was to wash away rage and regret and the taste of vomit with more ale, but apprehension held him there in the alley. Would Sarah and his father try to find him? Or would they wait for him to return, hoping he hadn't said anything, hoping he would keep their affairs silent and the family's reputation unblemished? And how could I live with that? Thomas thought. For his wife to have smiled at him all this time, as if she craved his attention as much as the day they first met, and for his own father to have rendered him cuckold, how could any of them live with that? Why? Thomas slammed his fist against the tavern's outside wall. Why send me back for this? You said you wanted to take it back. Thomas whirled to find Molly Warren sauntering toward him, her features as indistinct as before. Her thick gown made no sound as it brushed across the gravel. I would have taken it back, Thomas said, his voice a choked cry. I would have let her live this time, but for what? You would have let her live, Molly pressed closer. But what about your father? Thomas loosened his sweat-drenched collar, panted in the alley's stifling air. To see them like that again, to know that kind of betrayal... 
Molly gave a throaty laugh. <laughs> Betrayal? It is your father who sought to save you, who begged our master to give you a second chance. What are you talking about? Thomas tried to take a step back, but his legs grew so weak he was surprised he could stand at all. Molly toyed with his cravat, and Thomas cringed at the heat of her proximity. We feed off the sins of the living, she said, stroking his cheek. He off your harlot wife's, a feast you ruined the first time, now I off yours. Thomas's skin burned at her touch, but inside he felt as if he had turned to ice. Molly's lips curved into a smile, and he realized he had not been able to tell how red they were before. As if a cloud of smoke were clearing, her features grew more distinct, revealing eyes like flames, yellow, cruel, and hot. Thomas tried to scream, but his throat grew so tight he could only manage a pathetic yelp. Molly pressed her lips against his, and after a flare of pain, the feeling that she was sucking out his very soul, he fell into blackness. Thomas awoke on a hard mattress, shivering, suffused with a cold that seemed to rise from somewhere within him. He sat up slowly and tried to rub the warmth back into his arms and legs. Alone in a bare brick room, he studied the wooden door with a grated window that offered the only way out and grew certain he had seen this room before, from the other side. The jail. The vision that had flashed before him in the tavern returned. Molly Warren walking through a crowd, watching him swing from the gallows with a mocking smile. No one would sentence him to hang for trying to kill a man who cuckled him. Thomas had tried enough cases of that nature to be assured of the outcome. But cold despair gripped him nonetheless, as if every emotion that had ever made him feel alive, from the giddy joy of his first days with Sarah to the heated rage with which he killed her, had been burned away. Voices and a rattling of keys sounded from outside. The door swung open, and Thomas's father stepped into the room, hat in one hand, his walking stick in the other, a powdered wig covering his balding head. Thomas tried to muster the same fury with which he had fired his pistol at the man, but all he found within himself was hopelessness, the sense that his insides had been hollowed out. Public drunkenness? Seen cavorting with a woman other than your wife outside the tavern? His father strolled through the room as he rattled off the offenses. Confess your sins before the church and they'll let you go with a fine. No time in the stocks. I'll confess my sins when you confess yours. And what sins have I to confess? His father scowled in a way that made his skin look as if it had been stretched back from his mouth and over his cheekbones. You have no idea how many men that harlot wife of yours has taken to her bed, just like your mother. You have no idea what I was there to take from her, what I was trying to save you from. But now... He shook his head, lips pursed in a look of disappointment. You've proved yourself a hypocrite, like all of the others, trying to take a life when you profess to worship a god who forbids it. And so I gave you to Molly to feed on. Thomas opened his mouth to speak, but all that came out was a half-sobbed sigh. He trembled, cold and helpless, then finally managed. What the hell are you? Your father, of course. Also, the servant of a master who bids me to feed on sin like yours. 
like your mother's. After your mother betrayed me, Molly took pity on me and showed me what I could become if I desired it. I let her transform me. I drank of the master's blood, and then your mother was the first on whose sins I fed to serve him. His father joined him on the bed, and Thomas thought he saw a hint of yellow flame in his eyes. I could have been free of this blasphemous world at my master's side, but I begged him to let me come back. I begged him to give you a second chance to prove yourself worthy enough to become one of us. But you still would have killed me. You still would have sinned out of your love for that whore. Father, Thomas said, his voice choked with pleading. You and Sarah are truly a pair, an adulteress and a murderer, though only a would-be murderer now, aren't you? His father nodded, as if this all made right with the world, then stood to leave. Now that Molly is fed on you, you'll find yourself wishing for the gallows in time. You'll understand why your mother took her life. That cold you feel. He directed an all-too-familiar frown of disappointment at Thomas. Your sins have been taken, but so has all that made you whole. For without the temptation of sin, you have nothing to overcome, no reason to live. Father, please, Thomas called. His father strode from the room, seeming to suck the heat out with him. The door clicked shut behind him, but no desire for revenge stirred within Thomas. No anger, no guilt, nor anything at all except the realization of what he'd become, a shell void of every feeling but despair. Alone, Thomas shivered. Thank you for the story, Barbara. Barbara lives in the New Jersey suburbs of Philadelphia with her husband, whom she says indulges her geeky tendencies and ensures that she is well caffeinated each morning. She's a graduate of the Odyssey Writing Workshop, at which she learned valuable things about writing and the evil ways of chickens. Barbara is at work right now on a book that she lovingly refers to as her big, fat, epic fantasy novel. The narrator for Sins of the Living was Joe Sammarco, and I hope I got that right. Joe is a former Angelino who now lives in Harrisburg, PA, that's my old part of the world, and works for Verizon Wireless. He's 25 and is an aspiring voice actor. He's focusing on getting into animation or gaming. I've always been a proud geek, he says. Aren't we all? And has a soft spot in his heart for fantasy and sci-fi. As do we all there, too. It is a night for us geeks. Anyway, and thanks for your work here, Joe. We'd love to have you back. Our final piece for this evening is by a master of the craft of fiction, uh, Peter Crowther. Pete, as he signs his notes, is a British journalist, short story writer, novelist, editor, publisher, and anthologist. And with Simon Conway, the founder of P.S. Publishing, he edits a series of themed anthologies of science fiction short stories, published by Daw Books, and is also the editor of Postscripts, 
an award-winning anthology established in 2004 that now appears in trade hardback and signed slipcase hardback editions. Okay, Pete Crowther has won damn near every award there is, and aside from P.S., Pete's work has been widely translated. His short stories have been adapted for TV, both in England and the United States. They're collected in various places like The Longest Single Note, Lonesome Roads, Songs of Leaving, Cold Comforts, The Spaces Between the Lines, The Lands at the End of the Working Day, and the upcoming Jewels in the Dust. Here now is Peter Crowther's Jewels in the Dust. Ghosts walk Churchill Downs on Derby Day. To the old-timer, the whole place, paddock, field, and track, is crowded with memories. From Kentucky, by Irvin S. Cobb. Dear, beauteous death, the jewel of the just shining nowhere but in the dark, what mysteries do lie beyond thy dust? Could man outlook that mark. From Silex Scintillans, they are all gone. Henry Vaughan, 1622 to 1695. Abigail Rutherford swept into the room in a blaze of maroon cotton and a myriad wafts of crinoline scarves, whose designs dwarfed even the ambitious creations of Jackson Pollock comparatively pedestrian efforts, as far as Abigail would have it, and whose colors would have rivaled even Joseph's fabled coat. Two days the day!' she announced with a bravura wave of an arm that was skinny and waddled, the fingers of the hand at the end slender enough to pick locks, pushing the sweet scent of lavender before her like a summer tide. Tommy looked up from the comic book spread out between his elbows on the floor, the gaudily colored pages a mystery of shape and form and secret actions in nighttime cities, strangely garbed and muscular heroes braving death and worse as they swung between concrete towers and over the glittering streets far, far below. Really? he asked, pulling himself to a kneeling position. Really? Abigail confirmed. Yay! said Tommy. He leapt to his feet and did a little skip and jump around the comic book. Careful, Marianne Rutherford cautioned her son with a big smile. You'll be wanting another copy of that magazine if you scuff the pages. She turned to her mother-in-law and tilted her head to one side, as she always did when she was offering a change of mind. Are you sure, Abby? I mean, really sure that today's the day? It's just Saturday. A fine May Saturday, I grant you, but... Just another Saturday. Abigail did a twirl and burst into a fit of coughing, which soon spread into laughter. As sure as I'll ever be, she said, pausing for breaths between each point. She leaned against the wall, smiling at her grandson with thin lips that carried a swipe of lipstick, cheeks that bore the trace of hastily applied pink-colored powder, and eyes that carried the sky in them, complete with cotton candy clouds. And it's not just another Saturday. It's Derby Day. Derby Day? Derby Day! 
Young Tommy exclaimed, his face a glade of smiles. That's right, Abigail said, her voice not quite able to match the volume of her grandson's. So scoot, young fella, she added, ignoring the quizzical look on her daughter-in-law's face. She clapped her hands as though shooing errant cats busy chewing the plants in her beloved garden. The three rings, engagement, wedding, and eternity, giving out the faintest clink before settling once more. Make haste, she urged. Bring sodas, bring potato chips, she advised. Run and jump and greet the day, she instructed. Tommy disappeared in a flash, the swinging to and fro of the room door on a steadily decreasing fulcrum, the only sign that he had ever been there at all. That and the sound of small feet pounding up the stairs and a small voice calling out to the gods of childhood and eternal summer. Marianne looked across at the window. It was still early outside, early in big wide world terms, where activities among the windblown fields and hedgerows commenced long before they did inside the house. Everything was new out there, as though each thing, every glimmering ray of sunlight and every tiny drop of dew, were a one-off a never-to-be-repeated, infinitesimally small theatrical performance, new and only ever now. Inside the house, it was different. Here, within the labyrinth of walls and windows that was the home they all shared, everything was familiar. Radio news shows that forever reminded listeners of the time and what the weather was going to be like, and the sound of bacon frying and Mr. Coffee percolating, each mingling with calls for missing neckties, socks, and comic books, and all of them forever underpinned by the soft, susurrant hum put out by the old amalgam of wooden joists and nailed-on clapperboard stretching itself to meet the onslaught of another day. Every one of them a repeat performance. Like scenes on the VCR... Rewound and replayed forever without deviation. Time stolen rather than spent. Time waiting to die. To Marianne Rutherford, the world outside. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I looked momentarily immense, unpredictable, and somehow achingly wonderful. Its sound signatures hard to place, complex rhythms and discordant refrains. A haven, a release, an escape. Marianne turned around and mentally shook off the feeling of cramp unfolding in her stomach as she took in the full creative excess of Abigail's outfit. That's quite a combination, she said, a mischievous grin on her face as she stood up and planted a kiss on her mother-in-law's cheek. One thing's for sure, we're not likely to lose you. She took hold of Abigail's shoulders and held her at arm's length. My, oh my, don't you look the bee's knees. Abigail shuddered, her breath coming hoarse and sounding wheezing deep down inside her body. The bee's knees... And the cat's PJs. She returned the smile and affected a small slap on Marianne's arm. Got to look my best on Derby Day, she said between gulps of air. For Jack. Marianne fought off the frown that threatened to engulf her face. Right, she said. For Jack on Derby Day. Marianne felt Abigail's bony shoulders stiffen as she turned her back around again, immediately cursing herself when she saw Abby wince and try to cover it up. In truth, the dress hung awkwardly from Abigail's scrawny frame. It fell all the way to her ankles, ankles puffed up with water from the steroids. Marianne recalled those previous occasions when the dress came out. Red-letter days was how Abby referred to them, by virtue of the fact that the dress was the last present from her beloved Jack, and how, in those suddenly seemingly distant days of another life, the dress extended only to just below Abigail's knees. Then the garment itself had seemed to be alive and proud, like a peacock unfurling its tail feathers. Now it looked equally as tired and spent as its owner. Well, she said, backing Abby gently to a chair, I think you look wonderful, and I'm sure Bill is going to think so, too. 
Bill came into the room with a big grin on his face. To a degree, it managed to cover the darkness below his eyes. You gonna make some sandwiches, honey? It's the big day. Marianne gave her husband a mock salute. Yeah, Mom already told us. Derby day, she said, with just the slightest of upwards movements of her eyebrows. There had been so many big days this seven or eight months, as the weeks had fallen from the calendar at almost the same rate that the pounds had fallen from Abigail Rutherford's once ample frame. Thanksgiving had been the first one when Abigail had spent the full day out in the garden, taking in the fall air as she waited to be called to join her beloved Jack. But that night, as they all sat down to one of Marianne's turkey dinners. The table was splendid with sweet potatoes and corn cobs, sausages rolled in strips of bacon, bowls of peas with knobs of butter melting over them like flower heads. Abigail had announced that she didn't think today was going to be the big day after all. Patting her son's arm, she said, "But I'm guessing it'll be soon." Her sentences full and flowing, before the tumor eventually took away her breath. Then Christmas Eve and Christmas Day followed, with New Year's Eve and New Year's Day itself coming on hot behind them, and January saw Martin Luther King's birthday and even Martin Luther King Jr. Day, but still Abigail made it through to midnight. Her carefully chosen clothes returned to the wardrobe in the small room she occupied in her son's house. Groundhog Day came and went, and with it. Drifted Lincoln's birthday and Valentine's Day, a particularly fitting one for her and Jack to be reunited. Abigail had thought. By now, the chemo had taken a toll, and she was increasingly tired. Then President's Day and Washington's birthday, all of them great men. Abigail had proclaimed to Bill, just like your father, and I reckon that today. Will definitely be the day he calls for me to join him. But it hadn't been, nor had the day that daylight savings began. That's because we lost an hour. Abigail had explained as Bill and Marianne had tucked her up in her bed, the shadows playing around the walls like mischievous elves. Your dad. He needs. The full twenty-four hours to get me, and snuggling down beneath the sheets, she added, "But it'll be soon. Secretary's day," she said sleepily. "I was a secretary when your dad met me," and she closed her eyes and smiled at the memory. "My, but he was handsome." Still is, for that matter. By now, the cancer had spread throughout her body. It was just a matter of time. But Secretary's Day turned out not to be the big day, though it was the day that the breathing apparatus was delivered to the house. And taking her first swig from the oxygen tank, Abigail winked knowingly at Bill and Marianne. See. I told you it was going to be a big day today," she confided in them. 
just not the big day. But it'll be soon. You mark my words. Maybe it'll be Mother's Day. But today, the first Saturday in May, Mother's Day was still more than a week away. But Abigail seemed convinced, convinced, because it was Derby Day. Sandwiches coming right up, Marianne said, affecting a stiff-handed salute as she opened the icebox. She stared at the shelves of packages and jars, cold cuts, butter cartons and fruit juice bottles, individually wrapped cheeses from the deli on Sycamore, tubs of yogurt, tarama salata and hummus, small hillocks of salad greens, cucumbers, and tomatoes. What'll it be, O oh great one? Everything, Bill said. What say you, Mom? Abigail chuckled appreciatively. Sure, let's have everything. Let's have... She took a deep breath and shuddered. Let's have sandwiches fit for a king and his queen, she said. Her words labored, her hand clenched, but for the index finger pointing upwards and circling. Fit for placing before a visiting dignitary from far off Alpha Centauri. Come here to spend the afternoon, <laughs> she chuckled and added, and maybe get a little tan. Marianne laughed appreciatively. Can we have some peanut butter? Tommy asked in a nasal whine as he reappeared laden with more examples of four-color comic book wonder. And that tart jelly stuff. Tart jelly stuff? Abigail said, screwing up her face. Sounds yucky. He means boysenberry, Marianne said as she transferred more of the icebox onto the breakfast counter. He likes it spread with peanut butter and slices of banana. Ugh, gross, Abigail said, rolling her eyes around and around at Tommy. Who'd be nine years old? Bill loaded water into the kettle and placed it in the electric hob. Let's have coffee, too. Real stuff, not the instant. And make it leaded, Abigail added. None of that decaf. Not today. If I pee myself, then at least it'll keep me cool. Mom, Marianne said in time with Tommy's sniggers. She was cutting through cheese-topped bread cakes, setting them all out across the counter, tops next to bottoms. I can see where we're headed with this, she said. It's decadent day. Tommy frowned as he watched his mother work. I thought it was derby day, he said to no one in particular. It sure is, son, Bill said, and he ruffled his son's hair. What your mom means is that it's a bit of both. Two days, all rolled up in one. So what's a decadent day? Decadent day, Abigail said before spelling it out and then repeating it as though it were a mantra. She slumped tiredly onto a stool and took a deep breath. It's a day when we don't let anything matter, Tommy. A day when none of the normal rules... 
apply. I'm not sure that's a good idea, Mom. We have to have. Abigail nodded. Your father's right, Tommy. We have to have rules, or the world—well, it just wouldn't hang together. She smiled gently at Tommy's father and then quickly looked away. Everything would just fly off in confusion, like whoosh. She swept her arms up in the air to either side and then collapsed forward, coughing. As his father took hold of her and gently patted her back, Tommy said, "You mean like gravity?" "That's right," Bill said softly between "shh" and "there" and "okay now" sounds, as he continued to pat and rub, like gravity. Eventually, the coughing subsided. "You okay, Gran?" Tommy had thought about it before even asking. Maybe if she wasn't okay, they wouldn't even leave the house, and he so wanted to go out and picnic, feel the grass springing up beneath his sneakers, trying to get right inside with his toes. It had been such a long time since they'd done anything at all, what with Gran's constant coughing. And that gizmo tank of air she sucked on while she was watching the game shows on TV. As he watched her, waiting for a reply, Tommy suddenly noticed, just for the most fleeting of seconds, how thin she'd gotten, like she could get through doors when they were still closed. It looked to him as though Gran could do with a whole heap of peanut butter, banana slices, and boys and berry jam sandwiches to build her up again. And maybe a couple chocolate spread ones, and a carton of vanilla yogurt or strawberry and caramel mousse from the Safeway store. I'm as fine as wine, and as frisky as whiskey," came the reply. Though it was a little wheezy and not altogether convincing, the memory of a voice rather than the voice itself. Tommy hoped his father hadn't noticed. He looked around at his mother and saw she was watching him as she loaded cold meats onto buttered bread and spread that gungy brown stuff that had a fancy boy's name, humus, and looked like his poops when he was sick, and they were all runny. He saw her smile at him—a strange smile, kind of sad, and yet not sad. Marianne watched her son watching her. For just a second, she thought of herself back at nine years old, tried to imagine what the world looked like through those young eyes. "You all ready?" she said, breaking the eye lock and placing a cheesy top on a mound of lettuce, sliced ham, and pickle. "I'm going to be done here in a few minutes, and we don't want to be waiting while you get things together." Tommy shrugged and held out the confusion of comic books. I got things to read," he said triumphantly. "And you've brushed your teeth." Tommy thought for a second. What the heck did brushing his teeth matter? They were going to eat, weren't they? He certainly didn't want all the sandwiches to taste of peppermint. Boy, parents could be a little wacky sometimes. He nodded. Before he added with a jerk of his head, when I got washed up. Clean shorts. He looked down at his shorts, 
saw the dangling figure of Spider-Man hanging from his belt, and then noticed the stain on his left leg just below the pocket and the bulge of his Bart Simpson handkerchief. He shifted his leg slightly and lowered the comic books to cover it. It wasn't a big stain. "'Can we take the frisbee?' he asked, changing the subject, and he skillfully shifted the need for an answer from his mother to his father, who seemed to have stopped patting and rubbing. "'Can we, Dad?' "'Sure. We can do anything today.' "'Cause it's a decadent day, right?' Everyone seemed to find this amusing, and all thoughts of clean shorts went off on the wind. Abigail sat up front, alongside Tommy's father, a place usually reserved for his mom. The fact was that Gran was the only one Tommy's dad would let up there, like she was the president's wife visiting for the day. There was a lot of huffing and puffing as Bill and Marianne helped Abigail into the seat and fastened the belt across her. There were a couple of sorry moms, followed each time by that's okay, son, or that's okay, Marianne, it's just me sitting awkward. And then she was in place, wheezing like a train or the air conditioning pump before Bill fixed it last spring. Tommy slid into the back of the old Chevrolet the familiar smell of creased and worn leather drifting up to meet him. He slid his comic books onto the shelf behind the seat, tossed the frisbee on top, and pulled his cap on tight. We taken the roof off, Dad? Bill Rutherford plopped into the driver's seat and looked across at Abigail. How about it, Mom? You up for a little fresh air? Tommy's grandmother patted her son's knee. Let's go. The whole way. Let's take off the sides. While we're at it. She glanced around at Tommy and did that spinning movement with her eyes. And let's... Let's take off the hood. And the trunk lid. Let's just strip ourselves. Strip ourselves down. To the bare essentials. What say you, Tommy? Tommy chuckled. <laughs> Sounds good to me, Gran, he said. Marianne slid in next to Tommy and put an arm around him. You think we should, honey? She said, aiming the question at Tommy's father. Mom's gonna get cold. Tommy saw his father look into the rearview mirror. It was a strange look, aimed at Tommy's mom. It said, this look, that nothing mattered today. Today, nobody was going to get cold. Today, nobody was going to get anything bad. Sure, Tommy's mom said, responding to that wordless glance as she pulled her son close, squeezing him under his armpit, sending him into paroxysms of wonderful agony. We're going to be fine and dandy back here, curled up like a couple hibernating bears. Woo, woo, woo! She squeezed him some more. Mom, mom, don't, please don't. She stopped, and Tommy immediately wished she would do it again. But Dad had started the engine, and the roof was starting back on its pulley system. The early summer sky revealed itself in thin slices as the canvas roof whined backwards. Clouds rolled. Blue shone everywhere. 
Birds flew, and the air was thick with a million zillion microscopic bugs and gnats, each of them bound for distant lands, lands such as the trash cans over by the back porch or the drain hole beneath the fall pipes at each corner of the house. Those things must smell like chocolate syrup to those tiny things, Tommy thought, and just for a moment he regretted the odd occasion when he had joined in with the other guys in the schoolyard, removing wings and legs from creatures that wanted nothing more than to be able to languish on a nice turd or deep into the potato peelings and coffee grounds inside a bag of garbage. The roof reached its destination and gave out a thick grumble. Bill got out, walked to the back of the car, and leaned on the canvas, first at one side and then at the other. At Tommy's mother's side, Bill leaned over and gave Marianne a kiss on the cheek. Tommy watched for a second and then looked away. He had seen something in that small affection. He had seen tears in his father's eyes. It made him feel a little anxious. The way he did when Miss Gradsky announced a surprise math quiz and the only homework he'd done had been to catch up on what the Avengers were doing in this month's issue. The comic books... He turned around to the back shelf and saw it was now securely covered by the folded roof. Oh, well, he wouldn't need them until they got to where they were going, which was, Where are we going, anyway? he asked as his father fastened the seatbelt and slipped the gear lever into reverse. Oh, that's a mighty fine point, Bill said over his shoulder as the car drifted back out of the drive and onto the road along the front of the house. Where'd you think, honey? Marianne didn't answer right away. Tommy turned to look up at her, and he saw that she, too, had those same tears in her eyes. Well, it's got to be Mom's choice, she said. It's her day, after all. Tommy leaned forward and stood up behind Abigail's seat. Where are we going, Gran? Abigail looked across at her son, and, in a soft voice, she said, All the way. We're going all the way today. Bill smiled and swallowed hard. Tommy leaned forward. Where are we going, Gran? Abigail slapped her knees and breathed in deeply. Well, I reckon we should go down to Morgan's Meadow, down by the stream. She shifted around so she could see Tommy's face. But before it gets too wide, so as you can't go paddling. Neat! Abigail closed her eyes and laughed. <laughs> yes, neat. Tommy knelt up on the seat and leaned on the folded roof as they backed out onto the road. Then, with a slight clunk of gears meshing, they were on their way. He watched the road dovetail onto itself, Cars parked at the roadside shifting by and coming together as they moved further away from the house. Honey? Yeah. Is she asleep? Bill looked to his side at the crumpled up figure. Yeah, I think so. So's Tommy. Marianne stroked a lick of hair from her son's forehead. She okay, do you think? Bill shrugged. Right now, all we can say is she's here. 
he signaled right and turned out of town, passing the junkyard and heading for Walton Flats. You know, he said, settling his arms on the steering wheel. I got to thinking this morning. Sounds ominous. No, nothing too... nothing too morbid. This while you were still in bed? I woke up one time and could feel you were awake. How could you feel I was awake? I don't know, Marianne said, suddenly wondering how it was that she did know, but totally convinced that she did. Your breathing changes when you're awake. Bill was silent for a minute, and then said, No, it was while I was shaving. Mm, and you were thinking? He made a sound that was part laugh and part apology for what he was about to say. I was thinking about now, the absolute now that we have right at this very instant. While you were shaving, you were thinking about us in the car? No, I was thinking about the now I had then. Marianne glanced down at Tommy and shifted her arm. Tommy grunted and moved closer to her. I was thinking about all the nows, every single nanosecond of time that we kind of close our eyes to because we're thinking about what's coming along, either looking forward to it or... His voice trailed off. Marianne reached out a hand and rubbed her husband's neck. I was thinking about how, when we have everything we could possibly want in the world, and we're with the people we so dearly want to be with, about how... Oh, it sounds silly. No, it doesn't. Go ahead. Tell me what you were thinking. Well... I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could just freeze that frame? If we could just stop everything from moving on and changing? You mean... Marianne glanced at the back of Abigail's head and heard a soft snore. You mean Mom? Yes, but more than that, everything. What else is there? What else is bothering you, honey? That's just it, nothing was bothering me, and then... He nodded sideways at Abigail. We had the visit to the doctor, then to the hospital, and then the operation, and the radiotherapy, and then, now, the shortness of breath, another visit to the doctor, the x-ray. And here we are, waiting. They had been told that Abigail had three to six months, though the likelihood was that it would be closer to three. Then, as the breathing worsened, even that prognosis seemed to be a little overly optimistic. They were looking at weeks, the doctor had told them, Abigail nodding, a small smile of acceptance on her lips. I'm not sure I fall... Well, it was all that, all that, that kind of started me thinking about how brief it all is. The time we have, you know? But how... If we added every single fraction of time together and truly appreciated it, life would be almost endless. He slowed to make a left turn. But it still wouldn't be endless, Marianne said. Mom and my mom and dad, they wouldn't always be with us. And Tommy would still grow older and he'd still find his own life and his own adventures. Yes, I guess that's it. What's it? 
what you said about adventures. That's what life is—just one big adventure. Oh, honey, Marianne said, her voice soft and low. It'll all work out, okay. The car slowed down, and Bill prepared to make a left onto the strip leading onto the meadows. Tommy sat up quickly, his head narrowly missing Marianne's chin, and said, "We here yet?" Bill turned the wheel and moved through a gap in the traffic, the car juddering as it moved onto the rough track. Almost, he said. Couple more minutes. She could feel him in the car right next to her, smell his cologne and the grease he used to put on his hair, but she knew that if she opened her eyes, he wouldn't be there. There would only be the car and her son and Mary Ann and Tommy. And outside the window, it would be a world where her husband no longer existed. Oh, Jack, she thought, squeezing her eyes tight. I'm causing them such sadness. They love you, Abby. The wind from whispering through her hearing aid sounded just like his voice, sounded just the way he always spoke to her. Be happy with that. Your time will come. And it won't be. She felt small hands on her shoulder, rubbing it gently. Gran, you awake? She lifted her head to make out she'd just woken up and hadn't heard the conversation her son and Marianne had been having. But the truth of the matter was, she didn't sleep too well now, and her dreams, such as they were, were filled with images of the cancer turning itself over and over inside of her. You bet. I'm awake," she said. She turned to look across the meadows, and just for a second, she thought she could see horses—lots of horses—being led in a procession by men so small they could have been boys. But it must have been the sunlight through the trees and refracting through the window glass, because there were no horses and no men. "You gonna park down by the river, honey?" Marianne asked. Bill didn't speak. Honey. Oh yeah, sorry. I was just thinking how deserted it is. And on Derby Day too, Tommy added. Maybe everyone's gone someplace else. It was true. Since they had pulled onto the dirt track leading through the meadows, they had not seen another car, nor even kids out walking or sitting listening to their radio or playing with balls. It's nice. It's not," Abigail ventured stiltedly. "Too crowded, but there were people there, weren't there? She could see them there behind the trees and just around the back of the bushes. Could see their striped jackets and their boaters, the occasional flash of a pink parasol. She squinted her eyes and concentrated, but the meadows were empty. Bill pulled the old Chevrolet right onto the grass alongside a thin pathway that wound its way down to the riverside. The air was filled with the sounds of summer, of sunshine, and of water burbling its way over the ancient stones of the riverbed. Bill got out and pulled the seat forward for Marianne before going around to let Abigail out. Tommy ran his feet on the carpet like a train, his hand clasped on the bright yellow frisbee. And his lungs greedily gulping in the outside air. Just hold your horses there a minute, Scout, while we get your gran out. Bill chided. 
Marianne went around to the trunk and got out the hamper, setting it down beside her on the grass. Then she lifted a pile of old sheets and a rug. Tommy pushed the now vacant seat forward and made to slide out. But the sight of his father holding onto his grand stopped him in his tracks. Bill held onto Abigail tightly, and Tommy could see her thin arms dithering from side to side, like a butterfly not sure of whether it wanted to settle on this flower or maybe this one, and her hair blowing in thin wisps in the gentle breeze. You okay, Mom? I'm fine, son, came the reply. Just as fine as wine. Not too cold. Now with a firm hold on the Chevy's door, Abigail straightened up and smoothed out Tommy's dad's collar. The smile she gave him was a secret smile, knowing and sad. Tommy frowned, and though he hadn't made so much as even the tiniest noise, both of them turned to look at him. We're just fine, she answered, with that big grin and a hunch-up of her shoulders that suggested being a part, along with her grandson, of some great and exciting plan. Aren't we, Tommy? We sure are, Tommy agreed, and just to prove it, he lofted the frisbee high into the sky, tracing its path with his hand over his eyes as though he were saluting it. Tommy, Marianne shouted, will you come and take some things, please? Let's get this picnic on the road. Jack came to see his wife after they had eaten. Bill had gone down to the riverside with Tommy, and Mary Ann, who had started out with such fine intentions to read the daily newspaper, had succumbed to the after-effects of the food and the sunshine, her eyelids drooping slowly until they had closed completely. Abigail watched her son and grandson while she listened to their distant voices, mingled in with the sound of her own breathing and Mary Ann's soft snores. It was as though they were in a different world, the two men, a world that Abigail was able to look into and hear, but one which she could not actually visit. He's a fine boy, Jack said, hunkering down beside her. Land's sakes, Abigail said, the words coming out as a hiss, her hand up to the collar on her sweater, fingers trembling over the chain he had bought her those many years ago. Shh, he whispered, glancing at Marianne. You gave me a start, Abigail said. He shifted around so that he was in front of her and smiled. You look as handsome as ever, Abby. Mighty handsome, if you don't mind my saying. His eyes traveled up and down her form, and Abby felt a blush starting in her cheeks. You're wearing my dress, he said. Of course. You look beautiful. Abigail shook her head and made to reach out to him, but Jack pulled away. Uh-uh, he said. That's not in the rules. Can't I touch you? He made a tight-lipped mouth and shook his head, his eyes mischievous as ever. Not yet, anyways. But I thought... She lowered her voice when Marianne shuffled onto her side. I thought you'd come... For me, I thought today was the day, the special day.
All days are special, Abby. What's so different about this one? Well, I figured you'd come for me. Today. She hung her head down and said, I'm sick, Jack. Terrible sick. I know that, Abby. I'm going to die. Yes, you are. And soon. Right again, soon, but not today. Abigail looked up at her husband, and just for a second, he looked seventeen years old again. And then he was thirty-something. Then, in his fifties, then he was a young buck of twenty-two. Seemed like he couldn't stay put for more than a minute at a time. So when? She asked. Exactly. Jack shrugged. The sound of laughter drifted over from the river, and Jack and Abigail turned to look. Tommy was doubled up in hysterics, pointing at his father. Bill was standing, pulling up his trousers. Even from here, they could see that Bill had somehow gotten into the water. They're going to come back, Jack said, turning back to face her. I have to go. But you didn't. You didn't. Answer me, Jack. When? I don't rightly know, Abby. But some day soon, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, he shrugged again. Like I say, soon. But it might not be a day that has anything written beneath it on the calendar. There'll be nothing special about it. He looked back at Bill and Tommy, slowly making their way up the embankment towards them, and certainly nothing special about it for them. With Jack's attention momentarily distracted from her, Abigail wondered whether she could shoot out her hand and take a hold of her husband's wrist. Whether doing so, her living skin joining up with her husband's ghosts, might mean she would die right there and then. But the laughter drifted up to her and into her head, like the fizzy bubbles from a bottle of Seven Up, and she turned, her hand halfway out in front of her. But stopped short of its target. Bill waved to her, and she raised her hand and waved back, feeling suddenly weak, but somehow strong as well. They can't see you, she said as she looked back at him. Jack nodded. But I'm gonna have to go anyways. Do you? Do you have to? He nodded again. This time, with a deep sadness etched into his face, his seventy-eight-year-old face, the one that she had watched those years ago, lying so still on her pillow as he drifted away from her, his hand locked in hers, as he fought to stay another few minutes. Like I said, Abby, all days are special, and right now. These last days you're spending with Bill and his lovely wife and that fine boy, these days are special to them. These days are like small gems, like jewels in the dust. Make them count, every single one of them. And then he reached out and touched her cheek, fire and ice, soft and hard, dark and light. 
A thousand sensations shot through Abigail Rutherford's face and coursed up and down her body, setting her fingers to tingle and her toes to curl. I was never real good with rules, he said. I love you so much, Jack, she said, her words coming out in a stream without any pauses for breath. I love you too, Abby. I always will. And then he was gone. Tommy was the first one to reappear, the sound of his pounding feet waking Marianne in a fluster. What's the matter? What's happened? Dad! Tommy could hardly speak from a mixture of exertion and laughter. Dad fell in the river! I didn't fall in the... Marianne got to her feet. Bill, are you okay, honey? I'm fine. He flapped his trousers at her and gave a weak smile. Slipped on the stepping stones, that's all. You should have seen him, Mom. Gran, you should have... Abigail nodded and made a mock scowl. He was never... real good. On his feet. Your father, she said. She pulled the blanket from around her shoulders and threw it over towards her son. You make sure. They're dry. You'll get... rheumatics. Tommy frowned. Room attics? Hush now, Tommy. Let's get your father dried up and back home. Drying his feet while Marianne and Tommy loaded the picnic things into the trunk, Bill sensed he was being watched. He shook his head. Could have happened to anyone, Mom, he said. I know. But it was always you. It happened to. He wiped out his shoes and, pulling a face, slipped them onto his feet. You had a nice time? She nodded emphatically. I've had a wonderful time. How you feeling? She lifted a hand to her cheek and rubbed the spot where Jack had touched it. It felt warm, special. I'm feeling just fine, she said. It's been... A great day. Bill nodded, and just for a second, he frowned. She reached out then and took her son's hand. A special day. For the rest of her life, a rich, happy, and fulfilled life, and one which turned out to be a little longer than she had once hoped, Abigail Rutherford treated every day as a special day, savoring every minute and every hour, as though it truly was her last. Which, of course, is what we should all do. Thank you for letting us have Jewels in the Dust, Pete. And thank you for writing it. This story, um, it, it touches me in a way that few tales really do. At my current age, I now have something both to lose and to live for. And, and I suspect how I respond to this story today is significantly different than I would have, say, 20, 30 years ago. 
I'd love to hear from you about this tale, about your reaction to it. Drop by the forum, leave a note. Uh, let's talk. Oh, a word. P.S. Publishing specializes in novella-length science fiction, fantasy, and horror fiction. That means tales from about twenty to 40,000 words, just my meat and potatoes. Uh, as I've mentioned before, I am not a brief guy, and ten to 20,000 words, I'm just getting started. Anyway, it is one of Britain's premier small presses and has won the British Fantasy Award for Best Small Press almost every year since... Well, since 2001, it says, um, Pete and I have met on a few occasions. They're passing glances at conventions and such. In 2007, he was on the panel of judges at the World Horror Convention's Flash Fiction Contest that awarded first place to my story, um, Then Just a Dream, which we had on here a week or so ago. I have still never cracked P.S. Publishing. Ah, well. That is to come. And thank you again, Amy H. Sturgis, for a beautiful rendering of this story and its people. Amy is by now, I hope, an old friend to all of you and a member of the Tales to Terrify family as well as the Starship Sofa family. So stop by her website. Say hello. And that will do it. Take care on the way home tonight. Weather threatens again, it seems. Rabbits are gathering on the small lawns down the way toward the lake, and, well, it is dark, and the way uncertain. Stop by our site, leave word, drop your thoughts, comments, hit those buttons, make a contribution to keep us in mood and in bandwidth. And now, Go home. Have a look at your wall. Be glad that you don't see horrid things up there and all that whiteness. Snuggle down. Pull the sheet over your eyes and have pleasant dreams. Hmm. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm velour xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 